Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Listening to Jim Paris Live, your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right, hello everybody, and welcome to the broadcast. Happy Father's Day, and uh, for all the fathers, especially uh, in the audience, you know it's uh, Father's Day. It's it's an interesting day because for me, obviously, over the years it changes, right? So you have a baby. And so now you're a father of a baby and that has a certain meaning to it. Right. And then your child grows up a little bit and now it's father's day and maybe your child is in first grade. Then before you know it, your child is in high school, then they're in college. And now you're a father of adult children. And I I've thought about that journey over the years and um, you know, they're they're all different stages of being a parent. But if you ever if you're a parent of a younger child and you have this idea that once your child turns eighteen or twenty one or twenty five or thirty that you're done, um, it doesn't work like that. And that's really a good thing because your kids need you, even though they're independent and they have their college degrees and they have their high paying jobs and they have their independent lives and all of that. They still do need you in their lives. And sometimes the relationship with an adult child can be difficult because they want to project all this independence. They don't want to come out and say that they need you, but they do need you. And so that's where you sort of just, you're kind of the parent that calls a few times a week, hangs out, invites them out to breakfast, to lunch, to dinner, just to stay connected. And that's super important. But happy Father's Day, no matter where you're at in any of that uh, stage of life. I feel sorry, I really do, for people that don't have children, especially that are older. I get it when you're younger, (laughs) having kids. There were times uh, when having three kids was not a super exciting thing. My wife and I, we went through I don't know how many babysitters over the years. And, you know, you think, well, we're just going to go see a movie tonight. You've got to find a babysitter, a reliable babysitter, And you've got to work out the schedule, you know, when can they get there? How late can they stay? And you're under all these constraints. Then your kids grow up and you don't have to think about that anymore. But I get it. When you're younger, you can go on vacations. You can go out and do things. You don't have those obligations. You don't have all the expenses of having kids. But then when you get older, when you're in your 50s, when you're in your 60s, it kind of becomes uh, in some ways a role reversal where your kids start checking on you and making sure that you're okay. And so it really is uh, a rewarding time when you have your children and they're, they're grown up and you still have that good relationship with them. I have not yet experienced having grandkids. From what I understand, grandkids are kind of the best of all worlds, right? Because you get to have the kids for like a day or two and then give them back. 
<laughs> you go back to your perfect life, right, of of being someone that's independent that doesn't have the obligation of kids. My two kids right now, really, my my two bigger responsibility children are my dogs. <laughs> and so, you know, my wife and I are planning a little trip in July, and so it's all about who's going to watch our dogs. We have one of our dogs is kind of a special need dog. We adopted her from a shelter. So that's kind of where our life is right now. Our kids are adults and independent and uh, we've got two dogs that we've got to deal with. So we can go see a movie though and leave the dogs by themselves. They're actually pretty good. We've left them, I think as long as like eight or nine hours when we've gone like over to Disney to the theme parks. But in any case, happy Father's Day to everybody. We have a great program lined up for you tonight. A quick cough break there. I have to tell you that I've been struggling with this cough, this cold, for it is now three and a half weeks. And I was officially diagnosed with pneumonia. Many of you know that I mentioned it last week. And I sort of shook that, but I've still got this lingering stuff in my in my chest. And I'm hoping that it will be gone soon. It's going on a month. And I have to tell you, I don't know if it's Florida or what it is, but uh, so many people are sick now with um, bronchial uh, chest colds, allergies, all of that sort of thing. And, and not just for a few days, but like for weeks and a month or longer in some cases. Tonight, we've got a great guest. Let's get down to business here. We've got Daniel Lieberman here. Dr. Daniel Lieberman is here at the bottom of the hour. He'll be here to talk about his book, The Molecule of More. Now, this is really fascinating. This is a book about dopamine and how our whole life revolves around this chemical in our brain everything from social media and getting likes on facebook which creates dopamine to buying something on amazon and clicking that buy button and the two-day shipping and all of that that creates dopamine even online porn addictions are are connected to dopamine so a lot of really fascinating information i don't know if there's any book out like this that's strictly about dopamine the molecule of more dr daniel lieberman will be here at the bottom of the hour as we have done now for what is this a month now that we've been totally independent from the national radio network we we have a sponsor every week and that way we don't have to have commercials and i'm going to ask my producer who's listening in another room if the uh, sound uh, the, the the levels are okay tonight if not uh, or if so either way let me know send me a quick text here on my phone Tonight's sponsor, so we don't have to have commercials, is me. How's that? And we're going to make it the 90-minute Bitcoin quick start. That is my book all about Bitcoin. And I just want to tell you about it for a quick second. It's available at Amazon. It's $9.95, the 90-minute Bitcoin quick start. You can find it at Amazon, less than 10 bucks. If you're a Prime member, free shipping. And what the book is, for those of you that know my little bit of my Bitcoin story. I started in Bitcoin in 2012 and I didn't buy a lot. I just bought a small amount, like $20 worth. And I talk about that in the book, but over the years I've learned so much about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and all of that. And so many people have asked me, Jim, I want to take you to lunch. I want to take you to coffee. I want to pick your brain. I get so many emails with questions. How do I get started? How do I not get scammed? What about this site? What about that site? Uh, all of that. Um, I what I did was I started putting together like a white paper, like a PDF that people could download, and it turned into this book. 
And it's, it's really, I mean, I have to tell you, I put six, seven months full-time work into this book and I put it out there at 10 bucks, which is crazy, but I wanted so many people to be able to get this book. So check it out. It is the 90 minute Bitcoin quick start available at amazon.com. And if you're a prime member, you can get it with free shipping next week. Our guest in our guest segment is nutritional pharmacist, Ben Fuchs. He comes on with us a couple times a year. I absolutely love this guy. So much energy, so much great information about supplementing, supplementing, you know, should I take this vitamin? Should I take this supplement? What about protein shakes? What about this? What about that? All of that next week with our good friend, Ben Fuchs. All right. A lot of news tonight to get into. One of the things that has struck me this week is it seems like we're repeating the same mistake. And when I say we, <laughs> I'm using the editorial we, not me, but like sort of the culture at large. A lot of people are starting to get excited and interested in the polls again. And all of these polls, these political polls are saying that Trump is going to be crushed. There's one poll I saw today that like, I don't know, Biden is up by seven or eight points over Trump. Bernie Sanders is up by 8% or 9% over Trump. All, you know, pretty much any, any Democrat that runs is going to be Trump, according to all these polls. And it's just, it's, it's funny to me. I don't know why people have such short memories, but this is now we're back in the, the, the mode again. It's like Trump is absolutely going to lose. He's going to be completely crushed by pretty much anyone that runs against him, according to the polls. And I put an air quote there around polls, but that's where we're back. All right. The other story that has me absolutely riveted and fascinated. I don't know if you saw this story and I want to break this down for you tonight because sometimes what happens is in the news, there are two or three stories. And if you look at them separately, they don't really have the shocking impact that all two or three of the stories kind of together have. And that's where this story comes into play. And I want to share this with you tonight. And you might hear some of the real smart commentators breaking this down for you tomorrow. But I'm going to be the first one to do it tonight to sort of connect these dots for you. So as you know, if you're following the news this weekend, kind of a slow news weekend, but one of the big major headlines is that the president, President Trump, is accusing the New York Times of treason. And the reason he's accusing them of treason is they published a story and the story is about the U.S. attacking the Russian power grid. Now, I thought it was kind of weird. My first thought was, wow, are we really doing that? Is the U.S. attacking the Russian power grid? Well, if you look into the story a little bit further, you'll find out that this is kind of the new, um, the new uh, area of warfare, is, is cyber warfare. We had our good friend Dr. Ron Rhodes on what, three, four years ago, talking about his book on cyber warfare. It is thought that the next battle may not be with bullets and bombs, but it might be over the Internet. And so this is part, I guess, of our military strategy to infiltrate the Russians' power grid because apparently they are infiltrating our power grid. And so if they, for example, take down our power grid, we could retaliate by taking down their power grid. So I guess this is a thing. This is what the, the military is doing, working on this cyber warfare thing. Well, the New York Times published a story 
on this. And so here's kind of part two to this. So the New York Times publishes this big story saying that the U.S. is attacking the Russian power grid, and they provide all these details and everything. So that is what set President Trump off, and he said the New York Times is guilty of treason for publishing this story. Well, when I first heard about the president's allegation of treason against the New York Times, my, my first thought was, um, well, he's upset with them that they're leaking this story, like this is a secret military project, and they're leaking this story. But then it kind of takes a little bit of a different twist where the president, I guess, if I understand this right, is denying that we're actually doing this. So the president is saying, we're not, actually, we're not attacking the Russians' power grid. This is an act of treason for the New York Times to make up this fake news story about us doing this. All right, connect the dots again to the, to the third dot here. So now what has happened is apparently the New York Times is saying, yes, in fact, we are attacking the Russians' power grid. And they, they contacted the top national security officials in the U.S. government and confirmed this with them and basically got like a nod to be able to run this story. So here's the fourth dot. So here's the new narrative now. I am not kidding you. This is the new narrative that you're hearing today on national news. Here's what they're saying. They're saying that it is now so bad, the Trump administration is so bad, that national security officials are running this Russian um, grid attack project without telling him. So, so in other words, Trump is so inept and so incompetent, according to the media, that the national, these national security officials cannot even tell him about these secret projects that they're involved in. Now, I don't even know where to start in breaking this down. Let's assume for a moment that there is such a secret project where we are creating a strategy to retaliate against the Russians if we go to war by taking down their power grid, if they take down our power grid. Okay, let's assume that's true. Isn't this shocking that the president isn't being told that we're doing this. And rather than the media narrative being, wow, we have people in our government that are actually launching attacks, cyber attacks on the Russians, and they're not telling the president. I mean, what wasn't it? I mean, hasn't it always been historically the case that the liberal media were doves. They didn't want us to go to war. They don't want us attacking other countries, even when it's justified. They don't want us to do it, right? But now all of a sudden, the same media is saying, you see, the president is so inept that these national security officials are running this Russian project, and they're not even telling him that they're running the project. In other words, the media is blaming Trump somehow that he's not in the loop and his own national security officials are not only running this so-called secret project, but then uh, dumping the fact that they're doing it to the New York Times. Uh, I don't even know. I mean, so is this 
okay that they have disclosed this to the New York Times? I mean, if it really is a secret project, right, should the New York Times be publishing an article about it? I would think not. I would think the national security individuals behind this, the Pentagon and and NSA and all of that, they would not be giving this information out publicly if this is a secret operation. But then it gets the deeper issue here to me is, do we real? I mean, people laugh when you say deep state. They say there is no such thing as a deep state. It's a conspiracy theory. But this seems to me like the most plausible evidence yet to date that there really is a cabal. There is like a secret power within our government. Imagine this, that these people could actually start World War III with the Russians by trying to mess with their power grid and not even including the president of the United States in the loop about that. I think this is a huge story. I think it's explosive on several levels, and I am just really interested to see what happens this week. I mean, if it really is a secret project, which seems possible, why would the president not know about it? Would they be running such a project against the Russians and not tell the president? If so, that that to me is just shocking. I mean, heads have to roll if that's the case, that they're doing this and not including the president. And the idea that this is okay for the New York Times to dump and disclose this secret project and that national security officials are okay with that. So in other words, it's okay for the New York Times to know about this project. It's okay for the public then to know about it. And the president of the United States, who's the guy who has all the nuclear codes, he's the last guy to know we're doing this, really? Something is really rotten in Denmark. I, I just cannot wrap my brain around this. But I'm not hearing any reasoned real discussion of this. I mean, is, is that where the narrative then ends up that we blame the president, that he doesn't know what secret projects are going on? I mean, my understanding is the president is to be given a, a briefing at least once a day, uh, w- which would include things like this. The idea that they're doing this without his knowledge and then blaming him that this is being kept from him, I find that just unreal. I mean, I I don't even know how to think that through. But uh, that is, to me, really the biggest story. Then we move on to this story, which is fascinating. Alex Jones, who used to be on the same network with me when I was on GCN. I never met Alex Jones. I don't know him. Um, I think we can split the difference on Alex Jones. He's entertaining. He does have a lot of good information and occasionally goes off the deep end. I think that's all true. To, to simply like minimize everything he does by saying that it's all conspiracy theory, it's all untrue, it's all hyperbole. I think that's crap to do that because he does have a lot of good information. And for, for years, I've listened to his show. And he has for years predicted this, that someone would plant child pornography on his computer network. And it's just unreal that it turns out that that has happened apparently over the last couple of days. And, and right now on the Drudge Report, there is a $1 million reward being offered by Alex Jones for anyone with information that can lead to the identity of the individual or individuals behind this hack of his computer network. This would be the ultimate takedown. And he predicted it, that that someone could 
plant child porn onto his computer network and make him look like he's involved with child porn and basically destroy his, his reputation. Um, this is, uh, I don't know if I'm more shocked that it actually happened or that he predicted it, but that is going on right now. So if you are an Alex Jones listener, you'll probably be hearing a lot about that uh, this week. Well, I know he does a Sunday show also, and I did not hear a Sunday show today. Probably talked a lot about it today. All right, let's let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, Bitcoin. And uh, again, our sponsor, 90-Minute Bitcoin Quick Start. <laughs> I'll just throw that back in there again. Uh, and by the way, um, for those of you that want to follow me throughout the week, and I always forget to do this at the top of the show, christianmoney.com is the website. You can follow me on Facebook. James L. Paris is the name I use on Facebook. And then also our Facebook fan page, which is christianmoney.com. You can find us there. You can find me on Twitter. James L. Paris is my name on Twitter. Okay, so Bitcoin, uh, I was taking a look at this a couple of minutes ago. And Bitcoin is uh, on another tear again, taking off again. Right now, Bitcoin is almost back to 9,200. We're also seeing movement in other cryptocurrencies. Uh, Ripple, for example, is up to 43 cents. Ethereum is up to 273. So we're seeing some movement in other cryptos as well. And uh, I continue to be just really excited about uh, what's happening with Bitcoin. One big story I saw uh, this week about Bitcoin, which, which really got my attention, was um, pointing out that in less than one year, I guess it's in like 340 days, the mining difficulty for Bitcoin will double. And I'll break that down into layman's terms. What that means is in less than a year, the amount of new Bitcoins created each day will be cut in half. It's called the halvening, the halvening, where the mining difficulty doubles. There can only be a total of 21 million Bitcoin ever created. And we already know that probably three or four million Bitcoin have been lost. How do they get lost? Well, one guy lost like $50 million in Bitcoin on an old computer he threw away. I, I mean, that's how it happens. But um, So maybe they'll only end up being like 17 or 18 million Bitcoin that'll ever be actually in circulation. And that means there's not even enough for every millionaire to have one Bitcoin. And so one of the articles I read this week, one of the analysts was saying that people are starting to realize the scarcity of Bitcoin, that it is a scarce commodity and that there are only going to be 21 million total ever created and that the mining difficulty is doubling. So less and less Bitcoins are going to be coming out. I think there's a lot to be said about that. I think that is an excellent, excellent point. Um, but uh, cryptos look great. Uh, again, if you want to find out more about getting started with Bitcoin, so much in my book, including how to get Bitcoin for free, how to get started with 10 bucks, all kinds of things like that you're not going to find anywhere else in my book, 995 over at Amazon, the 90-minute Bitcoin quick start. I got to tell you this really quick story. So there's an article over at my blog, which is blog.christianmoney.com, and it's about how to find lost money. A lot of you have heard of this idea before that if you move and maybe you forget about a little bit of money you have at the bank, or maybe there's a utility company deposit, uh, a refund that, that you're owed back, or maybe a little bit of money from a, an employer. Sometimes when you move, money that you're owed doesn't find you. And that money goes to the state to be held. 
in what's called the unclaimed funds account. And I have found a lot of money over the years. I found over $4,000 for myself, not all in one lump sum, but, but maybe about 20 different um, uh, accounts that I found over the years. Um, I also found for my brother-in-law a lost bank account in California, and uh, it was for $7,000. But I probably had the most interesting find about a month ago. I was looking in Illinois where I used to live. I search states where I live now and then where I used to live. If you want to find out how to search for lost money, check out my article at the blog, blog blog.christianmoney.com. You'll find it there. But in any case, I found money that was in my dad's name, but it was from before he was married to my mother when he was still living at home. And that would have made this lost money more than 50 years old, more than 50 years old. And um, so I passed along the information and um, my mother was able to get this money. Uh, My sister helped her out to to go through the process of getting it. It was about $350, which is not a huge amount of money. Um, Believe it or not, there's 58 billion, billion with a B, $58 billion in lost money. Um, but the fact that it was more than 50 years lost was really neat that I was able to find, I mean, imagine this, my dad would have been, I think 18 years old when this money, it was a life insurance policy he had that had a dividend and that money was sent to the address of where his parents lived, but they had sold that home and he had then gotten married with my mother and moved away. And so the money went to that address and was lost, was never reconnected. And my dad passed away uh, almost six years ago. And so money from more than 50 years ago found. So if you want to find out how to find lost money, it's a lot of fun. You can search for yourself. You can search for friends. You can search for relatives. And uh, it makes a great gift. <laughs> hey, by the way, I just found uh, $500 for you. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a cool thing. So check out my article over at the blog, blog.christianmoney.com. Okay, before we get to our guest segment tonight, I am back on two wheels, baby. Back on two wheels. What does that mean? I, have, I grew up on motorcycles. I started riding motorcycles when I was, I don't know, maybe like 10 or 11 years old. My parents had a little 50cc um, mini bike that I was allowed to ride, just in the in the the neighborhood. Um, no, no, you know I could drive like in my own driveway. <laughs> then I graduated to I could go up and down the street that I lived on, but that was it, a little side street. And then I graduated to you know more and more uh, you know experience with motorcycles. And so about maybe seven or eight years ago, I bought a little European style scooter. And my wife, we, my wife and I, we really love this little scooter. You know, we live right by the beach here, so we go over the bridge, and then we're, on, we're, at, we're at the beach. We're at the Atlantic Ocean. And we used to love to just take this little scooter, just go over the bridge, go down to A1A. There's all these little restaurants down there. You can sit and eat and watch the, the ocean. Our church is, is over there um, right by the beach, so even riding, you know, the motorcycle to church. But what happened was, about two or three years ago, this scooter I had kind of just died, and it was determined that it would cost too much to fix it. 
So I just sold it for like two or 300 bucks just to get it out of the garage. Somebody came and bought it who kind of refurbishes motorcycles and sells them and they were happy to get it. And I was happy for the space in the garage, but we've been talking about it for a few weeks, the idea of getting another scooter again. And, um, you know, a little bit of advice here. I had bought a Chinese scooter, Chinese made, which are super cheap, you know, a couple thousand dollars. You can get a, like a 150 CC Chinese scooter, but my experience is they're just not very well made. What you want to go with is probably the Japanese scooter. And I bought a Yamaha S max, which is the highest rated, uh, scooter by consumer reports. And, um, really having a good time. We, we got it yesterday and uh, drove it yesterday, drove it today and uh, starting to do some kind of study and, and preparation, making sure I'm a safe driver uh, of a motorcycle. And I found this interesting statistic uh, that 43% of motorcycle deaths involve just one vehicle. Isn't that interesting? So about half of motorcycle deaths are just the motorcycle driver and his motorcycle. That really tells you something about motorcycle safety. Yes, there are careless drivers out there that hit motorcycles. And as a motorcycle rider, you have to be super careful. You have to be defensive. You've got to be visible. You've got to wear really bright colored helmet and vest and jacket and all that. And, and I do all those things, but um, it looks like about, you know, according to this statistic, about half of motorcycle accidents are just the motorcycle rider. You know, so that really does tell you something. One last interesting thing, though, in buying a scooter, I learned something new. Um, and this might, I don't know, this might be a new thing. I don't know. If you're a motorcycle enthusiast, I'd love to have you email me and get your reaction to this. But um, apparently, when you go into a dealer and you buy a motorcycle or a scooter, so mine is a, is a 155cc scooter it can go like 80 miles per hour which i'm never going to take it up to that speed i'd never going to take it up on i-95 it's just for side streets over by the beach a1a in my neighborhood going up to the grocery store up to the starbucks that kind of thing um but when you go in to buy a motorcycle they have a price so let's say the price is five thousand dollars so you start negotiating against that price and you don't realize that there's like about a thousand dollars that they add on when you go to the final closing table. Now I was a cash buyer, so I didn't have to deal with financing and all of that nonsense. It's just a cash deal. Okay. But, um, and, and so I did some, you know, research on the internet, checking this out. It, it is an odd thing. I mean, they charge you for like delivery and dealer prep and set up and all this nonsense. So the advice that I got from the internet was, negotiate on the driving out the door price. Don't negotiate on the motorcycle first, only to go into the closing room and have them add the $800 or the $1,000 on. You want to negotiate the whole deal up front, the driving out the door price. That's what I did. And I got a fantastic deal. Who knows? Maybe they laughed when I drove away and they, they made a lot of money off me. I doubt it. But, you know, you can research the price of the motorcycle, but what you can't really research is every dealer is going to have different add-on costs. So the key to the whole deal is looking at like a maximum price you're willing to pay out the door with everything, with the taxes, with the registration, all of this stuff, all of the nonsense they add on. And that's what I did. I said, look, 
well, we've got to add this and we've got to do this and da 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 da. I said, I don't, I don't care. Bottom line, bottom, bottom, bottom line. This is what I will pay. So I gave them a number. It was kind of a low ball number. They came back with a higher number. We settled on the difference in between, and that's how I made the deal. So if you're looking to buy a motorcycle or a scooter, and you got to love it, these scooters, 80 miles to the gallon. <laughs> I've been driving it for two days, and like the the gas gauge is just like barely moved. I've got still like three quarters of a tank left. And I think it only holds like a gallon and a half of gas. I mean, you just have to love that. All right. Uh, we are done with our first segment. We'll take a quick one minute uh, uh, time out here. Uh, start the intro music again, and then we'll be bringing our guest on. Dr. Daniel Lieberman, author of the molecule of more will be with us in one minute. Stand by. <laughs> 